You're listening to Solving Climate Naturally. Join us as we unpack nature's role in tackling climate change and talk to the people leading the way. Today, we're thrilled to be joined by Francis Seymour. Francis is a distinguished senior fellow at the World Resources Institute and one of the world's foremost authorities on sustainable development. Her work focuses on harnessing the potential of forests to contribute to climate change mitigation and adaptation, including mobilizing Red Plus finance. Francis has a long and fascinating career advancing nature-based solutions around the world. We knew we had to invite her as one of the first guests on the show, and we're grateful to have her here today. Francis, welcome to Solving Climate Naturally. Thank you. Happy to be here. Fantastic. So let's begin at the beginning. What inspired you to dedicate your life to fighting climate change, and how did you get interested in natural climate solutions specifically? Well, I came to climate change by way of the forest. You know, when I was a kid, I was always interested in nature and animals. And, you know, my first career aspiration was actually to be a wildlife veterinarian. But when I was in college and graduate school, that was when the international community first sort of discovered, you know, the value of tropical forests. And I decided I wanted to be part of that. And so early on, I caught a very lucky break when the Ford Foundation was willing to take a risk on me and send me off to Jakarta to be a program officer in Indonesia working on what we then called social forestry. And pretty much everything followed from that. Specifically on the connection to climate change, um, when I went to C4, the Center for International Forestry Research, in 2006, that was right when the connection between forests and climate change was just splashing onto the international agenda and you know, the whole idea of forests being an important solution uh, to climate change. And so among the first things that I did at C4 were uh, to help launch a research program on forests and climate change and to help organize the first of a series of forest days in the sidelines of the UNFCCC COPS starting with the one in Bali in 2007. That's incredible. So so that was sort of part of your transition to forests, but I know that you've concentrated some of your work on tropical forests in particular. Why tropical forests and sort of what's especially significant or important about them? Well, I guess, again, since my interest first started more than a generation ago, this was the era of sort of, you know, Ben and Jerry's rainforest crunch. And the, the attraction of tropical forests was, was particularly the incredible biological diversity in tropical forests. And, you know, not just the sort of charismatic megafauna, but also just the really cool, you know, frogs and insects and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, funky plants, just the, the amazing variety of, of plants and animals that are, that are found there. But also, it was an appreciation of the cultural diversity that that tropical forests helped to conserve and the role of indigenous peoples in protecting forests. So I think those attributes were the ones that were attractive to me, you know, when I was first getting started 35 years ago. And it was only more recently that the linkage to climate change really came to the fore. And Francis, you mentioned you got your start in forests 35 years ago. I'm curious what's changed with the state of the world's forests since you started back then and what's still a challenge today? What have we solved in that time and what are we still grappling with when it comes to to forests? Well, I think there's good news and bad news. The, The good news is that we understand so much more now than we even could have then 
in part just because of the revolution in the availability of force-related data and the satellite-based monitoring systems, which have really only come to the fore within the last 10 years. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that the only way to try to guess what was going on in tropical forests at a global scale was to wait every five years for the report that the FAO put out, you know, based on self-reporting by, you know, member countries. You know, it, it really, a lot of what happened in the forest was literally invisible because these were very remote areas and, and people, we really didn't have a handle on, on what was going on or, or why. And so now with the ability to, to see what's going on from space at increasingly high spatial resolution and temporal resolution, the ability to, to know, you know, what's going on has just, you know, exploded in a way that was unimaginable just 10 years ago. And increasingly, an ability to understand why, I mean, using that spatial data with, you know, econometric kinds of methods to see to what extent can we demonstrate that, say, securing indigenous people's rights leads to better, you know, forest protection. We just come a long way in in understanding all of those things. The bad news is that we still aren't solving the problem. You know, we're, we're speeding in the wrong direction. My colleagues at Global Forest Watch diligently published their reports based on all this new satellite data of tree cover loss, you know, every year. And in 2019, the world lost almost 12 million hectares of tropical forests. And about a third of that was primary forest, you know, the most valuable, relatively you know, untouched areas. And that was the third highest annual loss, you know, in this century. So, you know, we're, we're not solving the problem. And in fact, those 2019 numbers were before the pandemic hit and all of the sort of crises-driven pressures on forests that we, we really don't know the full scale of yet. One thing that's so striking to me is, like you said, we have such a, a better understanding of the problem. We can quantify it. We can measure it. We can see it. And yet there's still such a massive underinvestment. And I recently read your your book, Why Forest, Why Now? And, and one of the things that was really striking was just the outlining of why it's so underinvested by folks from the climate world and why it's equally underinvested by folks from the development world. I wonder if you could just take us through that, that argument or, or those reasons. Sure. Well, I'm afraid that in development world, um, there is still a, a persistent myth that somehow protecting the environment more generally, and and forests in particular, is somehow a zero-sum equation um, with the development objectives, you know, increasing economic growth and, and, and poverty reduction. Or at minimum, that protecting forests serves global interests, you know, in sort of climate, global climate, related to global climate change or, or biodiversity, but not so much, you know, local interests, or that in fact, it's at the expense of local interests. And yet, you know, the science continues to build about how conserving natural ecosystems such as forests, in addition to storing carbon and protecting biodiversity, they also provide functions like generating rainfall across scales and regulating surface hydrology and temperature in ways that are critical to maintaining such fundamental things as agricultural productivity and maintaining public health. And you would think that the you know, uh, origins, the zoonotic origins of the the current pandemic would be a clue that actually um, conserving natural ecosystems is is perfectly consistent with development objectives. And in fact, if we fail 
to conserve these ecosystems, it's going to be at great cost to development objectives. So I think there's still a lot of work to do in making the case to the kind of macroeconomists who populate, you know, senior positions at multilateral development banks or ministries of finance to help them understand that this is not a trade-off, but actually um, an investment in development. When it comes to people in climate world, um, I think we still do um, have uh, significant pockets of that world who haven't gotten the email that, you know, the so-called nature-based solutions or natural climate solutions are not just nice, but they're necessary to reach the goals of the Paris Agreement. I mean, you, know, just, you, you basically can't get there from here, you know, without um, protecting the world's uh, natural ecosystems and, in fact, enhancing their carbon storage functions. And I think over just the last couple of years, we've made a lot of headway on that, not least because of the communications efforts and, and people in, in our community, but also, you know, the IPCC special report on climate and land and the 1.5 degree report where, you know, it basically shows that, you know, not only do we need to, say, stop deforestation, but also enhance, you know, removals from the land sector to have any chance of, of averting catastrophic climate change. The problem is that even for those who get that science often have what I would say are, are outdated perceptions about either how hard it is to decrease emissions from the land sector in terms of just we don't know how to do it or hold over prejudices, say, you know, against forest carbon credits that date back to the CDM era. And a lot of people actually are unaware of just how much progress has been made over the last 10 years in the context of Red Plus negotiations and, you know, more general experimentation with Red Plus, you know, in tropical forest countries, for example, in how to manage the very real risks that, you know, investing in, in carbon in the landscape entail, but that I would argue um, we, we sure know a lot about how to manage them now. So that's a perfect segue. You mentioned an important term in this sort of landscape, red, red plus. So for the benefit of our, our listeners, could you quickly explain what red plus is and give us a little history of its evolution over time? Sure. Red plus stands for reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation, with the plus indicating that it also includes conserving and enhancing forest carbon stocks. So it's both, you know, reducing the emissions when we, we lose forests, but also sequestering carbon when, when forests um, are reestablished and, and gain carbon. And it really, the, the idea of RED um, first emerged among some civil society organizations in Brazil back in the first decade of this century and was placed on the agenda in the couple of years, well, preceding the, the, the climate negotiations I mentioned and hosted in Bali, Indonesia in 2007, as a proposed framework in which industrialized countries would provide a financial incentive to forest-rich developing countries to reduce emissions from deforestation in a way that was at that time characterized as, as a real win-win because it was thought that these emission reductions from forests would be less expensive than emission reductions from industrial societies and so could importantly buy some time to make a transition to, to low-carbon uh, industrialized economies. And from the developing country perspective, it was a potential you know, large new source of development finance. So it quickly gained political support and, and bridged 
a divide on conservation of forests that had been in place, you know, since the original Earth Summit, which notably failed to conclude a global convention on forests alongside the one on on climate change. Um, so the, the idea was born at that time. A lot has changed uh, in the intervening decade, and we can, we can talk a little bit more about that. The history of it was uh, a bridging of this gap between developed and developing countries on the issue of forests with an agreement for the industrialized countries to reward developing countries for their performance on conserving forests. And just a, a basic follow-up question, you know, how is that payment determined under Red Plus? Are you know, the, the payment amounts just intended to cover the cost of actually preserving forests, or is it based on a certain return to, to create incentives? And, and I mean, just on the cost side, what, what are the actual costs of forest protection? Uh, uh, really great questions. Well, first of all, I should stress that the unique feature of Red Plus and what distinguishes it from the previous decades of, of attempts uh, at international cooperation to protect tropical forests is the feature of payment for performance. And as a colleague in Brazil, Brazil puts it, you know, when you buy a banana, you don't ask the seller how much it costs him or her to produce that banana, nor do you ask how he or she is going to use the money that you pay, you know, to purchase that banana. But the difference between forest carbon credits and bananas is that the production of the former, in other words, get, you know, reducing deforestation, actually often entails political costs as well as out-of-pocket costs. Often to end deforestation, a government has to challenge vested interests in deforestation as usual, and they have to enforce the law against, you know, very powerful people. So, yes, incentives are important. And, you know, paying a good price for demonstrated success in reducing emissions from deforestation is meant to serve as an incentive, you know, to do that and, and do more of the same. One of the challenges with Red Plus is that the price has been relatively low. And of course, I suppose like bananas, some bananas are more expensive to produce than others. And there have been some studies showing that some of the, the sort of stroke of the pen type command and control efforts to control deforestation can actually be pretty effective at a relatively low cost. There was a study showing that the cost per ton of avoided forest emissions in Brazil several years ago through just law enforcement effort was less than $5 a ton. But if you talk to the former minister of environment from Costa Rica, he will tell you that a $5 per ton price is insulting because it actually calculated it costs Costa Rica quite a bit more to conserve and especially restore forests. You know, planting planting trees and, and keeping them alive is it can be quite expensive. So there's there's um, certainly a range here, but I think what's clear is that we we do need a meaningful price on forest carbon, both to cover the actual costs, but also to to provide an incentive. Yeah, and Francis, you started talking about the role of government. And one of the things that I've been interested in and in, in following the evolution of Red Plus is this movement from a project-by-project project basis to more of a jurisdictional approach, you know, where incentives are aligned with progress at the jurisdictional, the national, or subnational level. Do you mind talking a bit more about why this is important and how this actually works in practice? Oh, no, I'm happy to. I think it's a very important issue. When Red Plus uh, was first kind of launched out into the to the wild at, at the Bali negotiations, there was an injunction uh, to um, stakeholders to go out and do, quote unquote, demonstration activities. 
And those demonstration activities, for the most part, took the form of site-level projects. In other words, efforts to conserve the forest in a particular national park or a particular, you know, peatland area. But over time in the negotiations, there was a convergence on the need for Red Plus to be implemented at scale. In other words, at the scale of entire countries or at least large subnational jurisdictions, because otherwise you would have problems such as leakage. Like, say we are successful in stopping illegal logging in this area of forest. What's to stop the illegal loggers from just moving down the road to an area that's not covered by a project? And doing the logging there. And so from the perspective of the atmosphere, there's been no decrease in emissions. So that's that's the leakage problem and scale can help address that. But in addition, there was recognition and, and some C4 uh, research, you know, put a fine point on this is that a lot of the challenges that that impeded the success of, of project level efforts were things like unclear land tenure or um, permitting of commercial agribusiness that covered you know, the area of the project that came out of the, the, the national capital. In order to address the underlying drivers of deforestation and create the enabling conditions for protecting forests, there was a de minimis role of the government that, that had to be involved because only governments can enforce the law can, you know, regulate land use, can, you know, adjudicate where timber concessions or agribusiness concessions are going to be, you know, awarded and can implement tax and, and subsidy regimes that, you know, incentivize one kind of behavior instead of another. And most of those things actually you can't solve them at project scale. So ultimately, the Red Plus negotiators ended up talking about Red Plus as being accounted for on a national or, or subnational basis and having national level baselines and, and national level strategies. But we're, we have this legacy of Red Plus project investments. And also, we will always need project level activities and project level investments to do things that, that can only be done at, at smaller scale. So the big challenge facing Red Plus world right now is how do you reconcile that project level activity with the need for you know, jurisdictional scale action? And my view is that the best way to do that is to direct Red Plus crediting, the, the, the sale of Red Plus credits, whether it's to you know, donor agencies to retire those credits or to the, the voluntary market, that that should be done at jurisdictional scale to reward those political leaders you know, at the level of entire governments or large states or provinces for their performance in reducing deforestation with the project level activities nested within. And that's a transition that, that we're really facing right now. You mentioned, Francis, the role of these buyers. And I'm curious, are there other mechanisms that have been tried to reduce deforestation, such as supply chain practices and certifications? Can you talk about the intersection of those different mechanisms with Red Plus and how they work together or at odds with each other? And what can companies do versus what governments need to do and, and investors, that ecosystem of folks? Yes, it's been interesting for me to watch the evolution of the commodity supply chain movement or what of getting deforestation out of commodity supply chains, which has been sort of a big thing in, in strategies to reduce deforestation in recent years. Because in a way, that movement has gone through the same evolution as Red Plus in terms of having started with a focus on individual companies being sure that their particular, you know, supply chain, you know, operations, you know, tracing to the source of a particular 
uh, farm or, or concession area is free of deforestation. And so, you know, the analog is to, to projects. Um, but over time, there was a realization that even if those uh, efforts were successful, it wasn't enough to stop deforestation because, again, the same leakage problem obtained. You know, even if one company wasn't purchasing soybeans or palm oil, you know, from recently deforested, area, deforested areas, somebody else would. And so, you know, there really needed to be you know, government involvement in ensuring that across the landscape, there was a shift to more sustainable land use practices. And so the new <laughs> big thing in the commodity supply chain movement is the jurisdictional approach. In other words, working on, you know, with multi-stakeholder platforms in at the at the scale of large, you know, provinces or, or districts in tropical forest rich jurisdictions to work collaboratively to try to end deforestation. And so one of the challenges is to marry the Red Plus efforts and the commodity supply chain efforts at that jurisdictional scale, because up to now they've mostly been developing in independent silos. Because from the perspective of a of an elected political leader, the sort of the value proposition of having your palm oil smallholders, you know, have a preferential access to market might not in itself be sufficient to tip the balance over to more sustainable land use or a red plus payment might in and of itself might not be sufficient. But if you add them together, that that might be enough to, to add up to a, a meaningful value proposition. So I think one of the greatest opportunities right now is to align the commodity supply chain um, efforts and the red plus finance in ways that that make it worth the while of jurisdictional scale leaders to, to really make some changes in, in how forest lands are, are regulated. I want to switch gears just a little bit and talk about the public versus private finance. And one of the ideas I thought was really interesting that you laid out in Why Forest right now is this idea of the edification of Red Plus that because in practice, most of the funding has come from development assistance budgets, it's being channeled through multilaterals. And a lot of the implementing institutions are you know, the institutions that are designed for programming development aid, not for managing large-scale results-based financing schemes. And so you know, my question is, first, why hasn't private finance played a bigger role to date in Red Plus specifically or, or natural climate solutions more broadly? And what are the risks and downsides of this? A great set of questions. Well, first, briefly on, on why we haven't seen private finance for Red Plus. You know, there has been an active and, and recently skyrocketing market in project level Red Plus credits. But there is a fairly significant sense of unease about the quality of some of those project level credits, because while they may well, you know, do a good job in, you know, enhancing local livelihoods or, you know, protecting uh, a forest locally, as I mentioned before, they may not, in fact, be effectively addressing deforestation at scale. So I think there's been a hesitation about the sort of reputational risks of investing in project scale credits because there have been, you know, exposés about projects that turned out, you know, not to be real or to have disadvantaged local communities or, you know, have had other other problems. For Red Plus finance at the jurisdictional scale, we've had a chicken and egg problem where the potential private sector investors who, you know, might be willing to purchase jurisdictional scale emission reduction credits are saying, okay, well, tell me where I can go buy one. Do I have to personally negotiate with the governor of East Kalimantan or, you know, how's this going to work? But in a, in a concern about is there going to be a supply? Whereas 
on the demand, uh, on the supply side, the, the governments have frankly been pretty disappointed with Red Plus Finance up to now and haven't seen a clear market signal that the demand is going to be there, you know, if um, there had been, if there was, was performance. And I think it's just, you know, important to, to, to point out that, you know, when Brazil achieved its dramatic decrease in deforestation in the Amazon starting at about 2004, you know, that decline over the next, you know, eight or 10 years is like stands out as the, the an historic achievement of a country, you know, dramatically reducing emissions. And only a small portion of those emission reductions were rewarded from the international community. And so, you know, I think other countries paying attention, it's like, well, you know, you could put in a lot of effort do performance, but it's not clear that you're going to get get rewarded for it. So that's the chicken and egg problem, and and what a lot of people are working on trying to resolve right now, and try to to link up the prospective demand from companies with the prospective supply um, at jurisdictional scale. To get to your question about you know the the different roles of public and private financiers, I really want to hasten to give credit where credit is due in that the public sector financiers, certainly some of the leading donor governments, the Norwegians, the United Kingdom, um, Germany, have done a lot of great work in providing finance for some of the initial you know, pilot Red Plus at jurisdictional scale efforts and, and have a lot to show for that in terms of um, cer- certainly some performance, um, but also just uh, putting into place the building blocks that are necessary before you can get performance, the sort of more transparency of forest-related data, getting the the monitoring systems in place and having collaborative processes to build a strategy for reducing deforestation that's based on evidence of what's actually causing it. In many countries, dialogues with, you know, indigenous communities about, you know, how their rights need to be recognized. You know, so a lot of necessary preconditions um, being put into place. Similarly, the Forest Carbon Partnership Facility, which is managed by the World Bank, you know, has done a lot of important work in developing some, you know, methods for dealing with a lot of the issues that need to be dealt with and and helping um, countries get ready to sign performance-based Red Plus agreements. UN Red, collaboration of UN agencies, have, have helped countries, you know, put a lot of these building blocks into place as well. So I don't mean to be understood to say that there's not a place for public finance for Red Plus. There absolutely is and will continue to be so until, you know, countries reach a, a point of sort of market readiness. But I think once countries are market ready, a business to business, a more business like transaction between seller and buyer is much more attractive than the kind of negotiated outcome that has been characteristic of Red Plus up to now. Because, you know, by their nature, public institutions are encumbered by lots of policies and procedures that stretch out, you know, the negotiation process. And even once a country has qualified for an emission reduction payment, the process of actually getting that check deposited in the bank. And to the extent that that sort of increases the distance between, you know, performance and reward, it just attenuates the incentive to, to actually um, generate that performance. So I think the the market-like transactions are going to be much more attractive to the seller jurisdictions once they can, can meet the conditions that the market demands. Can you say a little bit more about this? You talked about a country being market ready. In sort of simple terms, what does it mean for, for a country's offering to be market ready? It basically um, is a whole basket of things. And, and it involves being able to demonstrate to the international market that the emission reductions or removals credits that are being offered for sale 
are characterized by, you know, the term of art is environmental integrity and social integrity. So the environmental integrity part is assurance that those emission reductions are real as seen by the atmosphere. So in other words, having a robust baseline that makes clear that the reductions would not have happened anyway, that they are a divergence from what business as usual would have looked like, that you know, there are systems in place to manage the risk of reversals. In other words, that you know, uh, a forest that's been conserved today doesn't just get burned down you know, next year. And if it does, have you deposited some credits into a buffer account that can be used sort of like an insurance fund to recapitalize you know, the, the, the credit that, that may have been destroyed in that process? But there's also the social integrity issues, and these have been particularly uh, a focus of concern in Red Plus because, you know, there's been a long history that basically every time anybody found something valuable in a forest, whether it's, you know, timber or gold or anything else, you know, urban-based or international elites have rushed in to capture that wealth at the expense of the local communities who live there. And so there's a very real risk that, you know, with, with that putting a value on carbon that, you know, local communities might just be elbowed out of the way so that somebody else could position themselves to get that, that money. And so the, the social safeguards include a whole set of regulations that involve making sure that local communities are informed, you know, about what's happening and have the opportunity to participate in decision-making and give their consent to what's going on and get a fair share of any revenues that are generated. And so a readiness means that a prospective seller jurisdiction needs to be able to demonstrate that the credits they are offering for sale are characterized by those attributes of environmental and social integrity. And Francis, just to follow up on that, you mentioned all these different safeguards being put into place for the environmental integrity and the social integrity. I'm curious how jurisdictional red accounts for transitions in government. And so how you mentioned Brazil in um, the eight years and how they have made so much progress in terms of reducing deforestation. But then we recently had Bolsonaro come in and safeguards or protections for forests were rolled back. How does red a jurisdictional approach account for changes in government and how do you adapt or, or work with that? Well, it's a great question. And I think in the first instance, the jurisdictional approach is a way to lock in incentives for political leaders to maintain efforts to protect forests because it will be a real you know, future-oriented revenue stream that goes away if you roll back the policies that were protecting forests. So in the first instance, one could argue that that the best way to guard against the so-called risk of, of reversals is to have a robust value proposition in front of political leaders that anyone you know, running for office would, would think twice before you know, tossing aside. And so I think that a lot of people have focused on what happened in Brazil as an example of how, oh, well, jurisdictional red is very vulnerable to reversals. But in fact, it was the jurisdictional scale effort in the first place that generated the, 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 the dramatic reductions. And one could argue that it was the international community that sort of failed to line up sufficient incentives to counteract, you know, the, the political dynamics that were driving the deforestation in, frankly, in Brazil and elsewhere. So I think a, there's a political level analysis. If you're asking about the technical issues of how to manage that risk, it is with the buffer pools that I alluded to earlier, 
where depending on the assessed risk of such reversals, a percentage of the credits need to be deposited in a buffer pool so that they could be pulled out to substitute for, for those credits that are reversed down the line. I want to go back to the role of, of public funding. And you mentioned Norway and Germany as good examples of, of countries providing funding for, for key projects. You know, in, in light of a, a new administration in the U.S. And, and a big focus on climate within the U.S. government, what do you think we should be putting, we, we as Americans at least, should be putting uh, funding towards? First of all, just to validate that it's just such a breath of fresh air to see not only the huge commitment to climate change as a whole of government effort, you know, both domestically and internationally, and a particular commitment to the U.S. stepping up on climate finance in general, because that's certainly a signal of, of good faith that, you know, we're back and we're going to do our part. But it's especially heartening to see just in the administration's, the president's executive order earlier this week, specific reference to a plan to protect the Amazon and other critical ecosystems. And so the forests and you know, natural climate solutions are on the radar screen as part of that broader commitment to, to uh, addressing climate change. So that's all really great news. That same executive order also makes reference to market mechanisms. So I think the U.S. government is well poised to exercise some leadership in signaling what good looks like, both in terms of corporate performance on reducing uh, emissions overall and specifically with respect to forests, but also what quality of supply looks like. And those are both issues that are very much under discussion right now. And certainly the U.S. governments could be a, a welcome voice in those discussions, especially in the run-up to the, the next COP in Glasgow later this year. So returning to some of your comments earlier on the tools required to scale up nature-based solutions, what do you see as some of the critical unlocks or proof points that are, are needed to get there? Sure. Well, I continue to maintain something that I said in the book five years ago with my co-author, that Red Plus, you know, remains a great idea that's hardly been tried. If you, if you define Red Plus as you know, large-scale certain reward for jurisdictional-scale performance, you know, we've had a, a few pilot efforts that have been you know, publicly funded that, that, that I've alluded to, but really, we haven't tried the large-scale market finance yet. And the, it, it feels like right now that that moment has come with, as you mentioned, all of these corporations making net zero commitments and starting to look around, you know, well, like, you know how can we include natural climate solutions as, as, as part of that solution? And so just, you know, as an example, one of the globe's largest sources of carbon emissions is from Indonesia's peatlands. And, you know, those peatlands have been largely disturbed and they, because they represent the accumulation of organic matter over the course of centuries, you know, once they've been, you know, drained and, and dried out, they become highly flammable. And, you know, as you can see in the, the newspaper, they periodically burn and generate just enormous quantities of emissions. And yet it is not a commercially attractive proposition to restore those peatlands to, to dam up, you know, the canals that have been uh, dug into them and to you know, restore their hydrology unless you have a price on carbon. So um, we really need to, to put that price on carbon. And that's something that you know, each government needs to do, whether through a cap and trade system or a taxation system, you know, all the different ways to do it. 
and that that in turn will unleash, you know, all kinds of innovative financial instruments, whether it's green bonds or something else. But for now, there are, there's a lot of investment that unless you can get that revenue stream from carbon removal or, or reduced emissions, the, the investment proposition just isn't there. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Going back to the big drivers, especially in the last sort of year or two, is, is this big wave of voluntary corporate pledges. All these new companies are setting science-based targets, and, and there's, we've seen a lot of momentum in this direction. I know you've done some thinking on this. So how, how would you like to see corporate sustainability teams thinking about offsets? Uh, great question. And in fact, my, my colleague, Paige Langer, and I are going to be releasing a, a working paper on exactly this topic in the next couple of weeks. I think what's changed is that, you know, in the past, there was, as I mentioned, you know, at the time that Red Plus was first coming onto the scene, that that because the reduced emissions from deforestation was inexpensive, that the industrialized economies could pay for that as a way to buy some time to make transitions in their own economies. The problem is that since we collectively as a human species have dithered, you know, over the last couple of decades since we knew that that climate change is a problem, it's really too late for any trade-offs that, in other words, we have to do both and it has to be all hands on deck and everybody needs to be doing everything at the same time. So we can no longer talk about corporations, you know, using nature-based solutions to offset their fossil fuel emissions, you know, as a, as a cost-effectiveness measure as we move forward on climate action. Instead, we need to say to companies, look, you need to be doing everything that's feasible to do now. And that's where the science-based targets come in, you know, in a, a sort of sectoral decarbonization pathway that says, you know, if you're an airline company or a cement company or an electric power company, here's, you know, how fast you need to be reducing your own emissions. And only after that do you have a social license to offset the remaining emissions that, are, that you're still emitting, you know, as you move down that, that glide path towards net zero. So it's really, it's a shift in the conversation from an offsetting language to a compensation language. In other words, you know, compensating for remaining current emissions, but not using the natural climate solutions to offset fossil fuel emissions that you should be reducing anyway, because it's currently you know, feasible to do so. So I think that's that's sort of a changed framing. Yeah, Francis, it's great you mentioned this sort of the paper that you're working on for guiding companies. Curious if you would share some of the other issues that you're engaged on today and the things that you're most excited about that you're working on. <laughs> sure. Well, um, one thing that I haven't mentioned yet, which I do in my personal capacity, not wearing my, my WRI hat, is to serve as chair of the board of something called the Architecture for Red Plus Transactions, or the ART. And it is an initiative that is focused on addressing that challenge of ensuring in environmental and social integrity on the supply side of the equation. So in the same way that the science-based targets initiative, you know, might show what does quality look like on the demand side, you know, what do the potential purchasers of, of emission reductions and removals credits need to be doing? The architecture for Red Plus transactions looks at the, the, the seller side. And so what the art has been doing over the last two years is developing a standard. It's called the TREE standard for the Red Plus Environmental Excellence Standard. 
which is an attempt to codify, you know, what would be the best practice for jurisdictional scale crediting of red plus, you know, emission reductions and removals. And so this week actually turns out to be an exciting time for ART because version 1.0 of the standard was released about this time last year. And we've actually had the first five jurisdictions sign up um, by the end of last year. And this week, we've launched for public consultation version 2.0, which includes a lot of innovations, including uh, crediting for removals, um, an approach to giving uh, special consideration to the so-called high forest, low deforestation countries that still have a lot of intact forests remaining, and several other changes that I think um, will will prove attractive to you know both both buyers and sellers. And so I think it's very exciting that we we do I, I think we're, we're we're able to define what high quality looks like on the supply side. And increasingly are attracting interest from some of the prospective private sector buyers who really want equality, who get it, who understand that buying, you know, very cheap forest carbon credits, maybe from dodgy projects, is actually not the way to solve the the climate problem, nor to um, maintain a a good corporate brand. And so that's a a very exciting space to to be active in. Another challenge that we have in this space, and in, in response to your question about, you know, what do I want corporate sustainability teams to be thinking about, there has unfortunately arisen a perception that only removals count. And I think this comes from the appropriate focus on net zero strategies that in the out years, companies need to be neutralizing their emissions. And in fact, you know, societies need to be neutralizing their emissions. In other words, you know, enhancing forest carbon stocks, for example, in the, the nature-based solutions space. But, but that doesn't mean that investing in reducing current emissions isn't important. And in fact, I would argue it's more urgent. It simply doesn't make sense to go out and plant trees, which you know will take 100 years to get back to the level of, of carbon stock of a tropical rainforest, when we're ignoring the raising of those tropical rainforests, you know, down the road. And so my advice to the corporate sustainability teams is that they think about developing a balanced portfolio of investments in natural climate solutions that in in the first instance are front loaded towards protecting those forests and other natural ecosystems that we still have. Um, while gradually over time increasing investments into the restoration agenda and, and planting trees for the future. We again it's one of those both and issues. But those companies that have announced that they're gonna, you know, meet their targets exclusively through planting trees and shunning the uh, forest protection agenda, I think are making a big mistake because those are some of the world's, you know, uh, highest reservoirs of carbon that are being liberated into the atmosphere as we speak. And, you know, the research shows that even if we were to stop and try to reverse that today, that that carbon is increasingly irrecoverable in the relevant time frame, just because it, it does take so, so long to, to recover um, that carbon into ecosystems. I think that's an excellent point, Francis. And, you know, even from my own work with mangroves and thinking about restoration versus conservation, it focus on conservation is so important because of the carbon stock that exists and the other values, the biodiversity that that is inherent in those systems. And often the trees that are already standing are accumulating carbon at a much faster rate 
than the you know seedlings or saplings. And I think that point is lost often. Oh, it's a, it's a myth. I mean, people who were in college in my day, you know, were taught that mature ecosystems were in equilibrium. And so a mature forest, you know, is is just sitting there not doing anything for you. And therefore, we should cut it down so that the younger trees, you know, are accumulating, you know, will be accumulating carbon faster. But of course, you know, it couldn't be further from the truth. Not only, as you suggest, big trees, you know, are actually accumulating carbon at a faster rate than the little trees. But from the temporal dimension, that, that huge pulse of carbon that's released into the atmosphere when you, you know, lose the forest that's standing, you know, again, takes 100 years to build it back by, by planting trees. So it really doesn't make sense to invest exclusively in the restoration agenda when we still haven't uh, cracked the nut on the conservation agenda. Totally. And I think also just, you know, factoring in the, the time value of carbon. Yeah. Right, a, a ton saved today is, is in many ways, is more value than a ton saved. Today. Well, and not given the urgency well, of the and problem. And since you mentioned that, it, it, you know, what you're alluding to this, you know, a ton is a ton is a ton, right? From the perspective of the the carbon in the atmosphere, right? But from the perspective of climate on the surface of the Earth, a ton is not a ton is not a ton, because emerging science is showing how forests moderate the climate in ways other than through carbon storage. And, you know, some of this is common sense. I mean, because of their uh, evapotranspiration and and shade values, you know, it's cooler inside a tropical forest than it is out in the the blazing sunshine, right? And, you know, there's research, you know, emerging showing how deforestation is causing not only higher average temperatures in adjacent agricultural areas, but even higher extreme temperatures that can have a profound impact on on both agricultural productivity and, and human health. And so, you know, it's it's not only the need to protect forests for cooling the globe, but it's also the need to protect forests to keep your individual community cool. And I think it's it's that that science is only just now um, really becoming appreciated. All right, Francis. Well, we're getting towards the, the end of our podcast. This has been a fascinating conversation. One of the questions that we ask all of our guests uh, is if you had a magic wand, what would you change to scale NCS? Well, in addition to reducing their own emissions, we need some big corporate buyers to make forward commitments to paying good prices for jurisdictional scale, red plus emission reductions and removals that meet a high standard. That's what we need. That's great. And, and so how can our listeners who are interested in pursuing natural climate solutions or learning more about NCS, how can they get involved? I think there are opportunities for everybody to get involved at the local community level to ensure that natural ecosystems that contribute to climate mitigation and and climate resilience are protected and restored. Um, For example, WRI is involved in an initiative called Cities for Forests to help urban leaders and urban residents to do their part to increase, increase tree cover within cities in nearby watersheds or even in faraway forests. All right. And to close this out, we have the most exciting part, which is the lightning round. The first question is, what is your favorite carbon sink? The rainforests of Tanapapua in eastern Indonesia, (laughs) home of the bird of paradise. An excellent choice. What is the favorite book that you've read this year or or last year? The Bear by Andrew Krivak. Put that on my list. What is your uh, favorite quarantine activity? Gardening. Now that I don't travel anymore, I can actually start the seedlings in my basement and keep the weeds down and really grow some beautiful tomatoes. That is fitting. What keeps you up at night? Oh, all of the overdue papers I'm supposed to have written by now. 
And what are you looking forward to in 2021? You know, I think 2021 is going to be the year that the world finally gets serious about climate change and nature-based solutions are going to be a big part of it. We certainly hope so too. This has been such a fun conversation. Francis, thank you again for joining us to talk about solving climate naturally. Thank you for joining today's episode of Solving Climate Naturally. Check out our website, solvingclimatenaturally.com. To see this episode's show notes, explore resources, and learn about upcoming episodes. Let us know what you think by connecting with us via email or Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. See you next time.